This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Series 1, Episode 94. I sit down with Lance Egan to learn about his Rainbow Warrior fly and his background in competitive fly fishing. Basically, just knew he had a successful fly pattern. I wanted to learn the history about it, and we got over an hour of awesome, super fishy discussion. You can find Lance at a couple of upcoming winter shows if you're listening to this on time and not down the road. You can contact him through his social media that he mentions. And I want to mention that this podcast is being brought to you by Ayoba Yo, Bill Tong, Bill Tong Drewers and Sausages. It is a local Northern Virginia company making traditional South African dried meats. It's awesome. I prefer the spicy. It's high in protein, bold, tender, gluten-free, no sugar added, no artificial ingredients. You can find them at ayobayo.com, A-Y-O-B-A-Y-O.com. In Northern Virginia and the D.C. metro area, you can purchase your biltong at Whole Foods and let's meet on the street butcher shop in Delray. So 
please purchase it. They will ship it to you throughout the United States and go to their website, sign up, and you'll find out when they have sales. Uh, this stuff's pretty awesome. We really can't get enough of it. It goes great with beer, uh, red wine, just sitting around, uh, G&T, you name it. So maybe you've already got some biltong. If you have some with you, uh, open the back up, eat a little bit, and listen to this podcast. Thanks so much for downloading. Jason, boom, do your thing. All right, so let's get this started. Uh, Lance, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. My name is Lance Egan. I'm a crazy fly fisher. Can't get enough, and I'm uh, happy to be speaking with my buddy Rob. All right, and where are you checking in with us today? I'm in my home in Lehigh, Utah. How do we? I'm going to look that up on the map right now. Lehigh, I guess my reference would be Pennsylvania, but this is different. It, it is different. Yeah, this is a Utonics lesson, so it's just L E H I. Lehigh. There's actually a Lehigh. Oh, that pulled up the one to PA. Lehigh, Utah. Let's see. We're kind of uh, almost right in the middle of Salt Lake City and Provo. What is Utah Lake? Utah Lake is, uh, other than the Great Salt Lake, the the second largest, I guess, to the Great Salt Lake natural lake in the state. It's very shallow, quite warm, uh, full of carp, catfish, has oh a few goodness. walleye, few bass, perch, bluegill, that kind of stuff. Pretty cool. I've been doing a lot of reading about aquaculture and Apparently, these are where they get the uh, the shrimps to feed a lot of the organisms grown around the world. The Great Salt Lake, yeah, have yeah. a lot of brine, brine shrimp for yeah. sure. Yeah, crazy. Okay, um, so you're in Lehigh. Did you grow up out there? I grew up in Utah, yes. I grew up in Taylorsville and Sandy, Utah, which are just, uh, they're both about 30 and 20 minutes to the north of where I live currently. Okay, and you work at Cabela's? That's correct. Currently work at Cabela's uh, in, in our Lehigh, Utah store. Okay. Lehigh, Utah store. So how far is that commute? Uh, depends on traffic. About six to eight minutes. Wow. And I'm guessing that's just a couple of miles? Yeah, it's like three miles. I was joking about the traffic thing. It's not. There's not much traffic. Dude, that's, <laughs> a, that, that's about as cruel a joke as you can do to someone who lives where I do. I had to go to the doctor's office. I had to be there at 1245 today. It is... Four and a half miles. I left at eleven twenty. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if it gets really bad, it might take me fifteen minutes to get there. But it uh, most of the time. This morning I had to be there at four a.m. And needless to say, there's oh, no traffic at four, so it takes about five minutes. I can imagine. All right. So, how did you get into to fishing? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure. I just kind of always had a passion for fishing. Uh, my parents think that they started it when I was a young baby. They and I wasn't sleeping through the night. They would prop me up in front of my dad's 50-gallon aquarium, and uh, I would ooh and ah the fish until falling back to sleep. Uh, so they claim that's how it started. Who knows, really? I remember being quite young and uh, and having you know friends in the summertime. You'd be out playing games or playing basketball under the lights or something and having uh, a friend have to go home early because he was going to get up really early to go fishing. And uh, I remember being super jealous because I didn't come from a family of fishers. So uh, I, I was always very interested in fishing, though I didn't really get to do much of it until I was uh, old enough to drive. 
my parents were kind enough to drive me around now and then when I was a young teenager, but but uh, you know certainly I had limited access to days on the water since my parents don't fish. Uh, but once I was 16, I was off and running and and uh, had access to a vehicle and a gas card, and uh, I was gone. How much snacks did you put on that gas card? <laughs> I don't remember. Not too many. I think uh, the gas card was mostly just for gas, and uh, the snacks were usually on me. I used to work at Orvis. This must have been 18 years ago with this kid named Rick. Total stoner, but he had his parents' Exxon card. And about a mile down the street from the Tyson's Orvis in Northern Virginia was uh, an Exxon with Jerry Subs built into it. Yeah. So he would just go buy us all sandwiches on his parents' account. I don't know if they ever caught him or not, but it was expensive. <laughs> well, I guess if they never paid close enough attention to the bill, then they expected it, right? Yeah. I mean, back when I was driving, a gallon of gas was 70 cents You know, when I started. Yeah. I had my parents' credit card. If I spot, bought anything at the store, they would have known because a tank was like $11. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy how much gas is now. I'm, yeah. I'm just old enough that when I was uh, a young driver, when I was 16, 17, I remember gas being under a gallon or a dollar a gallon as well. Yeah, to, to those listeners that are twice my age, they'll laugh at that and go, oh, yeah, we remember when it was so much less. But it's amazing how, uh, you know, it wasn't very long ago. It was almost $5 a gallon. Yeah, I'm not complaining with two plus right now. Driving you know, up to, to Jersey next weekend. Pretty tolerable, right? Yeah. All right, so did you have... Any mentors growing up? Anybody that got you into it? As your parents were not anglers, who sort of burgeoned your love of fishing? Uh, man, my love of fishing was really pretty self-driven. I think I did have uh, I had a guy that lived up the street from my parents when I was younger that was maybe ten years older than I was, somewhere in that realm, named Tyler. And Tyler was kind enough to uh, let me borrow a rod and reel, and sometimes waders, uh, float tube, even on occasion. And was kind enough to let me uh, tag along with him. He he was a, a, a advanced angler when I first met him, so he was always out catching lots of fish. And he was kind to take me and let me borrow some gear. And then he, we'd basically get to wherever we were going, and he'd say, "Give me a handful of flies," and say, "I'll see you at dark." And uh, so I was I was always you know waiting at the truck for him to get back going well i think i saw a trout you know i didn't catch any but i think i saw one and he'd come back saying yeah i caught 30 you know <laughs> so I, I started off a little rough but uh i definitely had some mentors along the way uh in the form of of co-workers i've worked in fly shops since i was in high school and uh, have had access to not only uh co-workers but also lots of of highly skilled customers you know a lot of the customers that frequent the fly shops are are uh, skilled at fly fishing and know their way around a lot of our local waters. And so I learned a lot from both my coworkers and from customers over the last almost 20 plus years. Um, so what would be the timeline? What was the first shop you worked at? Take us through the whole just job profile. Uh, so mid nineties, I'm unsure of exact years, but I think about 94 or somewhere in there, I started working at a shop called Willow Creek Outfitters in Draper, Utah. They are no longer in business, but uh, Andrew Benson and Dave Cornell were the owners there, and they were uh, kind to let a naive, uh, you know, very very lacking skill wise fly fisher work in their shop. And uh, I honed a lot of my fly tying skills there, tied a lot of flies for the bins. Uh, at that time, I was working there part time. Uh, I was also in high school and was, and then was uh, tying flies for uh, part of my work too. I tied for a local distributor. 
So I was tying lots and lots of flies, working mostly weekends and the occasional evening in the fly shop. And then around maybe, shoot, I don't know, two, no, it wasn't 2000, 98 probably, 97, 98, I started working for Fish Tech in Salt Lake City. They are still in business. They run a great shop that's an all-tackle store. Uh, so they have kind of half the building is fly fishing and half the building is, you know, bass and trout and uh, conventional type gear. Uh, I had lots of guys there that I could learn from, uh, Mickey Anderson, Byron Gunderson, Jimmy Gunderson, Brian Jarvis, uh, Nate Miller, uh, I'm leaving people out here, but uh, there was a bunch of guys that, uh, I learned a lot, an awful lot about both trout in rivers and in lakes and, uh, and i forgot my buddy roy hawk who is a professional bass angler uh, i learned a lot about fishing lakes from from roy and and the the gang there for sure uh you know upped my game overall just because i could talk to them and fish with them a little bit uh and uh I, you know i had a lot of fun working in that shop and then about 2005 i started working for cabela's uh and i've been there ever since nice. and you get a pretty cool view of you got some fish tanks in there, right? In Cabela's, we have some amazing fish tanks. Yes. What is that? Just torture being able to watch those all day? It's kind of like a strip club. <laughs> it's like you can look, but you can't touch. <laughs> well, Not that I wouldn't uh, know. I wouldn't either, but uh, I I do enjoy uh, the aquariums there. They're kind of fun. They have you know fictitious you know almost synthetically sized fish, if that makes sense. We have some rainbows that are. 20 pound rainbows in the aquariums that uh they're kind of fun to look at but they're also just mutants you know they don't uh, they don't quite look like a clean stream bred trout but they are fun to watch their their behavior and and how they react to incoming storms and barometric pressure changes i don't notice that the trout do much change but the the walleye in particular will really park on the bottom when we get drastic changes in in weather or barometric pressure the those walleye just park where the trout tend to be pretty active. They tend to cruise around always looking for food, uh, but it is fun to take a look at. I I don't spend too much time in there because uh, usually I usually have plenty of things to occupy my time at work, but now and then I'll peek in and have a look. And you haven't seen the videos of the kids jumping in? No, I haven't seen any I'm videos gonna, of the kids jumping in. Google. I think it's mostly Bass Pro. Kids jumping in Bass fish tank it pops up we have a tiny uh pond at the base of our mountain in our store that i suppose you could jump in but uh you'd have to jump in and sprint for the door because our uh that's what these kids do is they jump in someone's filming them in like the men's department and then they climb out and just run and there's like just i mean they'd be pretty easy to track down there's a trail of water behind them yeah yeah they'd get in trouble in our store i suppose that wouldn't keep anybody from doing it but uh we have a pretty elaborate camera system. Uh, we'd probably track you down and have the Lehigh PD nice. knock on your door after you did something smart like that. The worst that's <laughs> happened to my aquarium is my neighbor's kid dumped about a year's worth of dry flake food in there in one oh, day. Yikes. It was just, it was like pea soup. It was disgusting. I'm but sure. The shrimp went crazy and they ate most of it. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I've never seen shrimp happier. The um, gamorous uh, scuds. When you give them flake fish food, they come out of, like, the crevices and nooks and crannies, and they'll sit there and eat a whole flake. They just go nuts. Yeah. Interesting. Do you get to watch the fish eat and feed and think, all right, maybe I'm going to try a streamer that's shaped like this, or 
the way the fish come up to swallow something might change how I, I don't know, the hook, the way the fly's tied. Do you no, get creative ideas I, at all? I don't too much. If you could swim a fly through there, you probably could get stuff like that. But, it, again, it's so synthetic as far as – I mean, you, we used to feed them live goldfish, so they got really acclimated to orange coloration, right? And uh, we now feed them mostly worms, pellets, and live trout fry, so they – they don't get so dialed into the orange, but it used to be the orange goldfish. You could take like a, a butterscotch orange wrapper, tie it to a string and hold it about a foot over the water and they'd leap out after wow. it. didn't even have to hit the water. They were so conditioned to that orange color, but so it's not very uh, realistic, but it is interesting to watch them eat, you know, watch how they, how they eat a minnow, like the, the small trout that we throw in there, the medium size, you know, aquarium residents will, will T-bone the trout and then reposition it so that they eat it head first. The larger, you know, the 15, 20 pound fish, they'll just eat them whole. They don't seem to, you know, mess with it too much. Head first? But yeah, they always eat it head first, yeah. but they just kind of suck the whole thing in. And they, they seem to, uh, you know, where the bass will creep up to stuff and inhale them, the trout kind of swim through them, if that makes sense. I'm sure that they're flushing some water through their gills, but they don't do as much uh, they don't seem to engulf. Yeah, they don't seem to to vacuum it in as much as the bass do. The pike will sometimes vacuum in quite a bit as well. Cool. Yeah, they're good fun. Yeah, it's not a bad way to have just some some visual, some pets work, <laughs> if you will. So with the orange, yeah. I, I've been meaning for years ago. I was tying up orange bully buggers and uh, little orange clousers because we've got goldfish all around the Potomac. I'm not sure if things eat them, but I've never seen. Anything smaller than maybe 10 inches. So I don't know if the juveniles get consumed easily. Hmm. But I don't know either. I know I used to, I used to guide a little bit on a private piece of water that was just a small pond, spring fed pond. And, uh, there was a neighboring property that had some of the springs also that, uh, raised tropical fish. And so when it would get, uh, when we get a ton of rain, some of the, outflow channels and things would overflow and we'd get a few goldfish and a few guppies and uh even the uh, the odd oscar we'd catch in our in the ponds where we were fishing but we used to throw a fly there we called the beadhead goldfish which was just basically an orange beadhead bugger sort of a you know sparkly bugger and the fish would go crazy over it that sounds like fun <laughs> all right so let's get into some of the meat and the bones of the the topics here so people may know you as the competitive fly angler so I want to talk, I mean, I only know what I read about in Fly Fisherman. So if you want to go over um, how you got into comp- comp- competitive fly fishing, and then uh, I've got some questions that will probably arise from that. So how did you become sort of like into the European style of competition? Uh, so the European style of competition was more or less dictated by the international rules that uh, govern the World Fly Fishing Championships. So FIPS Moosh is the organizing body over that championship, over the World Championships. And the rules therein make it so that you can't add anything to the leader that would float or sink the fly. Sorry, that would float or sink the leader other than a fly. So European-style nymphing came about to make it so you could still fish nymphs uh, but just without any weight, no sinkers added to the leader, and without a strike indicator. So they've adapted it to make weighted flies instead of weight, and we use mostly colored 
monofilaments or what we call cider material that we build into the leader as our strike indicator. It works differently in that we don't float it on the surface as much as you would a typical strike indicator. We usually hold the cider above the water and uh, track it with a long rod and, and uh, you know, there are lots of advantages to that system. But anyhow, that's that's how I came to that. I got into competition fishing by doing some, I guess I got into competition casting first, doing some casting competitions. And then I uh, migrated into my first bigger competitions were the ESPN Great Outdoor Games and the Fly Fishing Masters that used to be put on by either the Outdoor Channel or the Versus Channel. Uh, those are kind of the first big competitions I did. And then in the process of doing some of those events, uh, I competed against people that were at the time on Fly Fishing Team USA, uh, the team that I'd, I'd never heard of at that point. And uh, at one time I beat one of the guys that was on the current Team USA, and they were looking to change the way that Team USA was selected or how it was made. So at the time, our the team that represented our country in the World Championships was just kind of a good old boys network, uh, a bunch of cronies that uh, had the funds necessary to go overseas and pay their way and have fun fishing, but not do very well in the championships because they were they were fly fishers, but they weren't necessarily highly skilled fly fishers. So uh, they were consistently doing quite poorly in the world championships, you know, near the near the bottom of 20 plus 25 to 30 countries. And, uh, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anyhow, they wanted to change that. So in that process, uh, they decided to start trying to find the seeking out uh, anglers throughout our country that might help get the make the team a little better. And uh, because I'd beaten one of the current team members, they invited me to come to a practice, which was in my backyard on the Green River, just a few hours from my home. And uh, so I jumped at the chance and and arrived at the green thinking I'm going to make Team USA and I'm going to help them win a championship real quick because I'd, I'd done really well in the ESPN events and I, I thought I was a pretty good angler at the time. I didn't, you know, I wouldn't say that I had a giant ego, but I thought I could hold my own and I got there and didn't have a clue as to how to adapt to the rules that I had to follow and, and, uh, so I had a lot of learning ahead of me, but it was, it was fun and it's continues to be fun because of that, because of the learning process and because of, all of the time I've I've had to spend to get to stay competitive and stay on the edge of things, it's uh, it's made my everyday fishing a lot better. This podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Ayobayo, A-Y-O-B-A-Y-O.com, a Northern Virginia company that creates South African traditional dried meats, including biltong, boars, and drawers. You can find these healthy meat snacks at ayobayo.com. You mentioned all those countries. Do you have anybody, uh, my first reaction would be to compare it to Jamaican bobsled team. Do you ever have people from like desert countries like that don't have fish, like the Saudis show up to do a fly fishing competition and you're like, where do you <laughs> practice? All you have is sand. 
I've never seen the Saudis there. No, we have. There is a team from Mexico every once in a while. I guess uh, I learned that Mexico has some trout in some yeah. of their higher mountains. Um, so that's kind of cool. Otherwise, I'm trying to think of other countries that participate that don't really have trout fishing. Uh, most of them certainly are, you know, trout countries, but. We've gone to some strange places. Uh, you know, we've gone. To, uh, the first championship I went to was in Portugal, which I don't associate with with trout fishing, but they do have trout fishing there. And uh, we've been to let's see. We went from Portugal to Finland to New Zealand to Scotland. Where else? That's 2009. 2010 was in Poland. I missed that one because my son was born during the championships that year. 2010, 2011 was Italy, 2012, I think was Slovenia, uh, 2013, I think was Norway, 14, Czech Republic, 15, Bosnia, and 16 was in Vail, Colorado. So we've had, uh, I've had lots of fun championships and visited some strange places. Got a lot of stamps on that passport. <laughs> yeah, I'm on my third passport now. Wow. Do you ever get to fish salt? Not that, for the championships. Does that no, interest you? Fished, oh, absolutely. I've fished salt on my own. I'm actually going to head to Mexico in another couple weeks here for some family fun and some fishing. But uh, I uh, I have fished a little bit in salt, but not nearly enough. I've dabbled in it just enough to know that I love it and that I need to do more of it. But we don't have, uh, competition-wise, the uh, world championships are always around uh, salmonids. So we're looking at uh, grayling and trout for the most part. Wouldn't even know what to do if I saw a grayling. Never yeah, seen they're one. much like trout. They're just uh, you know, small just mouth. Cousin. Yeah, a little smaller mouth than trout, but they like dry flies. They take nymphs well. A little tougher to get on streamers, but they will take streamers. So you mentioned dries. Is competitive fly fishing for fips moosh? Yep. Is it only nymphs, or are people using buggers? Any dries in there? It seems to be all what I would you know quote unquote check nymphs. Uh, yeah, no, not at all. It's, uh, it's dries, dry dropper, nymph streamers, however you can maximize your catch. The idea is to get on the river and in any situation that you're put in, you have three hours on river or lake, I should say. You have three hours to catch as many fish as you can in a small area of water. So you usually would get at the bare minimum, maybe a hundred yards and more commonly two or three hundred yards to fish for three hours. And then, like I say, your job is just to Catch as many fish as you can in that that small section of water within that three-hour time limit. So you usually exhaust every everything you can think of. You fish, you know, small dries or hoppers or terrestrials, depending on the time of year. Uh, tight to banks, maybe some caddis. If there's a hatch, you'll fish mayflies, you know, midges, you name it. And then uh, we'll oftentimes fish some of the the middle depths with a dry dropper rig, and then we'll nymph some of the pat, faster stuff. We'll nymph some of the slower pools, you know, nymph basically anywhere you can. And then if uh, if you happen to find one of the techniques that really works, then you oftentimes stick with it and then cover all that water type. And then at the very end of the session, if you have extra time, oftentimes people will come through with a streamer and just see if they can clean up with catching one or two more just to add to the scorecard with streamers. So there's, you're, you're, you know, most of the anglers that do well in the world championships are highly skilled at all techniques. It, it definitely gets a rap for just having, you know, people that are just just nymphing 
centric, I guess, just only good at nymphing. But to do well consistently, you've got to not only fish rivers, but you've got to fish lakes, and you've got to be able to fish dry flies, dry dropper, nymph streamers, wet flies, you name it, on all the above. It sounds like an intense afternoon or day or whatever. Uh, how is the <laughs> food? Do they feed you fairly well? I imagine like red wine and charcuterie with a nice tent. <laughs> well, it depends on where you are, I guess, as far as how well they feed you. I'm I'm a pretty simple person as far as feeding goes. So uh, uh, in strange countries, I sometimes have a hard time finding stuff I like to eat because I'm a little bit of a picky eater. But they uh, some places they feed you exceptionally well. In other places, I... Uh, I'm pretty thin, uh, so I don't have a lot of weight to lose, but I've lost as many as 8 or 10 pounds in a couple oh. weeks of being away. So for people that are listening, is there a celebrity you, you have a, a doppelganger with? <laughs> uh, no, not that I'm aware of. I was getting my ID taken at Walter Reed a couple of years ago, and I hadn't shaven, and my hair was pretty crazy. And The one with the camera just started laughing. She's like, you look like that wet bandit from Home Alone. So, yeah, I, <laughs> And that's what when I like, taught, the, the kids used to be like, you're that guy from Home Alone. Oh. <laughs> you're like, that's what I've been striving for. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm sure that's what my wife wants to hear. Your husband looks like <laughs> the wet bandit. <laughs> yeah, no, I, unfortunately, I'm a, I am have a face fit for radio, so hopefully nobody looks quite like yeah. me. There have been people, if I walk around with the microphone at events, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do the podcast. So like, i got to put lipstick on. I'm like, it's a microphone. There's no camera. You're going to be all right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what are the questions that I have about the competitive? Um, do you weigh your flies? We used to have a guy that would come into Orvis with a digital scale, and he would measure blooming olive dry flies for backpacking. And my thought was, are you trying to lighten your weight? Because you should just shave your eyebrows because that right. probably weighs more than a fly. <laughs> yeah, if you're, waiting, if you're weighing dry flies, you man, he's getting down to the nitty-gritty there. I uh, I don't weigh my flies anymore. I did at one time. Uh, it's a very common practice when you're learning Euro-style stuff to kind of organize your flies by weight so that uh, when you need to get down in deeper water or faster water, you know exactly which fly in your box is going to allow you to do that. Uh, after a while, you kind of get your confidence flies and you tie them with different size beads. Or Since I'm tying all my own flies, I, I know exactly based on where I put them in the box or which size bead they have, how thick the body might be, I can kind of tell whether they're heavy or light. Uh, usually I have my confidence flies with two or three different bead sizes, so I can just adapt weights based on that bead size. Do you have brand preferences for the materials you tie with? Of course, Cabela's gets a shout-out of other, other stuff uh, that you, you prefer, stuff that you might not be able to get in America. Do you use, like, some obscure european hook um no you can get it all in america i do there are some obscure european hooks my favorite nymph hooks are the hannock hooks which are a czech uh, czech made product they're now getting some of their hooks made i believe in japan but they were originally czech made uh they're a competition style of hook they're available in the u.s in both hannock brand and also under the umqua competition label uh so umqua is kind of a distributor for them so you can get them pretty readily that's my go-to nymph hook for sure. They have long points. They're they're uh, they're chemically sharpened. A lot of them are up you know, upturned points too. So although they're barbless, they hold fish quite well. Uh, I really like barbless flies for 
both competition purposes and my own fishing, just because it takes the hook out so much oh, easier. It's a hundred dollar copay for me to go to the hospital. Yeah. I, I just wish there were more hooks available barbless. Um, I use a lot of the saber barbless hooks, and I, I still haven't caught anything on the OPST swing hooks for steelhead. But that hook is just fiercely sharp and barbless on purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. I like barbless, and I wish there were a few more options in them. The the European market seems to really gravitate around, let's say, size 10 through about 14 size flies, 16s a little bit. But you don't find a lot of the really quality competition hooks in anything smaller than a 16. And I, I wish that there were a few more nymph hooks for some of our smaller, you know, fly patterns for technical fish or really clear tailwater fisheries, that sort of a thing. I'd like to have some really nice 18, 20, 22. I don't, I don't get smaller than 22 very often, but 18s and 20s, especially through the winter, I wish I had some better hooks for that purpose that are barbless. What about your beads? Are you using glass, metal, different, are you different varieties um, of beads, so tungsten, brass? Yeah, tin. pretty much always tungsten. With Euro nymphing, you're pr- you're always adding the weight into your flies, so you're you're you know you're gonna almost always want extra weight. So tungsten beads, uh, I use a lot of the jig hooks, so I use a lot of slotted tungsten beads rather than counter drilled. The slotted tend to be a little bit heavier than the drilled beads, and then they're necessary to go over the 60 degree bends on the jig hooks. Any Type of materials you prefer more than others? No, not really. I just just depends on the fly. Uh, you know, there are, there are lots of materials available. All of them are pretty good. I tie with a lot of hairline products, a lot of Wapsi products, some Umqua products or Mets. Um, Whiting, of course, has great products. Uh, you know, there's so many. Most of the stuff that's out there now is quality stuff. It's hard to hard to just pick one. And for those listening, if you didn't check my Twitter feed in November when I was steelhead fishing, Spirit River has been acquired by Hairline. So I don't know if they're going to still use the UV2 or what, but uh, Daring said they're going to be carrying Spirit River stuff now. Yeah, that's been my understanding too. I haven't looked into it too much, but the uh, correspondence I got from Airline was that they were going to, they're in a transition stage, but uh, I think they're looking to carry over at least all their pro- popular products. There's always a chance that slow movers are going to go away, but that's to be expected. Right. I do love that hairline catalog there when it comes. That's a good one. It's nuts. <laughs> yeah, mine is just dog-eared and taped pages and circles and highlighters. Um, all right, let's yes. talk about what's your rod setup, your, your rod reel line for competitive and your non-competitive. You're just going out to your local streams and looking on the map. Looks like there's plenty of water near you. Yeah, there's quite a few little streams around. We don't have a lot of big rivers, but we have quite a few lakes and lots of small to medium-sized rivers and streams. Uh, so typical, I guess, is uh, you know like most places, I use different rods for different techniques and different applications. If I'm fishing lakes for trout, I usually use a 10-foot six-weight. Uh, I've been using the Sage One for years now. I'm hoping to get one of the new X's in the near future. But so far, I've just got a 10-foot, 6-weight one that I really enjoy on the lakes. Uh, on rivers, I'm mostly fishing the new Sage ESN and a 10-foot, 3-weight. I uh, use that for nymphing, for dry dropper, and even for small dries. I really, really like that rod. It's, uh, it's become a favorite of mine. 
when I'm float fishing from the drift boat or the fly craft, I'm usually you got a fly uh, craft. I do, yeah. Oh my gosh, I want one of those so bad. Yeah, they're good fun. Yeah, my wife would not let me have another boat. <laughs> it is hard to uh, convince them you need one more boat when you already have one, right? Oh, and a canoe. For sure. Yeah. I think the squirrels live in it. It's behind our shed. <laughs> well, they need shelter. Yeah. Well, yeah, the flycraft is fun. I I use it more than my drift boat for sure. Uh, I have, you know, rivers that are easily floatable on the flycraft much closer to me, 20 minutes away instead of two to three hours away. So, you know, for the drift boat in a river, we've got a little longer drive. But but if I'm in either of the boats uh, fishing for trout, then I'm usually on a, on a little bit larger river. I'm usually throwing more like a 10-foot four weight or a nine foot five weight. I, I tend to, my favorites are generally sage rods. I'm, I'm, uh, I've, I've been a sage fan for maybe and close to almost 20 years, I suppose. They just seem to make the best rods, in my opinion, consistently. That's not to say there aren't other good rods in the market because there are. Uh, but they've been my faves and until somebody makes something that I like better, they'll probably continue to make my favorite rods. All right. What about your reels? What are you going to to hold your line? Uh, I'm not too particular there. I mostly fish Lamson and Ross reels, but, uh, I've mixed in a few others over the years, but most of the time I'm fishing Lamson speedsters or light speeds. They just, they kind of, they're super light. Definitely out out West people definitely like the Ross and the Lamson. I've noticed just solid bang for your buck reels. All right. And then do you do a lot of bobber fishing? I don't that... do very much anymore. I used to. Once I learned the European style nymphing, uh, it's hard to go back. Uh, once you understand some of the handicaps of indicators, I, I, I won't say that I never do because I do, but only when I feel it's an advantage. So I fish indicators from a drift boat sometimes on larger rivers. You can fish out ahead of the boat quite a ways farther than you can with the Euro rig. But most of my fishing is wade fishing, and I feel like the Euro style is uh, is a like I say, a huge advantage there. We, In fact, we just came out with a new DVD. My partners, Devin Olson and Gilbert Rowley, uh, and I, we just we just introduced Modern Nymphing, it's called, which is available for digital download on Vimeo or now available on, uh, as a DVD physical copy also. DVDs are old school now. Agreed, <laughs> but there are lots of people that yeah. still want them. We're finding we're, we're selling them to shops, and we're getting some people that are – uh, beating our door down, wanting to get them. But uh, you're right. The digital download in our case is actually less expensive. You can take it with you anywhere. You can yeah. put it on your laptop, put it on your phone, put it on your your uh, tablet. You can make it. You can watch it on your TV. You know, anywhere you want to watch it. And actually, the digital download, definition-wise, clarity-wise, is a higher quality video than the DVD, and it costs you less. But but there are still those that don't know what to do with the digital download, so right. they like they like to have the physical copy, and that's okay. We all, we have both available, so either way it works. My problem with DVDs, besides my daughter loses them all when we go on car trips, yeah, is that I find it to be just a pain in the butt to find the DVD. Now, like this is my first word problem. Got to open the DVD, find it, put it in, close the DVD player, wait for it to boot, and to me now I'm just like I don't have time for that. I'm gonna pull up Netflix. Yeah. This is faster. Yep. And we don't have to worry so about losing convenient. anything. Yeah. Agreed. So how can people get a hold of the DVD or the digital download? 
So digital download, if you just Google it, I'm sure you'd find it. Like I say, it's on Vimeo, Modern Nymphing by Devin Olson, Lance Egan, Gilbert Rowley. It's, uh, there's links to it on tacticalflyfisher.com, and the DVD is also available on tacticalflyfisher.com. Uh, hopefully you'll find it in your local fly shops too. If you don't find it there and you want to support your local guys, have them give us a ring. We'll, we'll, uh, get in touch with them. They can get me on Facebook. Uh, or you can contact Devin at Tactical Fly Fisher also. Either way, we'll get some DVDs to your local fly shop and make them available close to you. Was it difficult filming these tactics, trying to get the fish to eat, good water, weather conditions? Weather was probably our biggest hurdle. We just, we just kept encountering wind, 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 uh, wind in the microphone, wind no blowing good. your leader around, blowing, blowing, blowing. Yeah. But otherwise, the fish were pretty, uh, pretty good. You know, I think we're we're blessed with we had Devin and I uh, doing the the hosting the video, if you will, and Gilbert and a couple other folks doing the, the videography. And and uh, so Devin is a very highly skilled fly fisher. He knows how to catch fish in almost all conditions, and and I'm not too bad myself. Uh, so we we managed to catch a few fish for the film. Uh, we had a lot of fun. We the real goal is to share our love of the European style nymphing. It's, it's, it's called modern nymphing European inspired tactics. And, uh, it's kind of a blend of all the techniques that we've learned over the years and, and in, made into a system that's pretty simple and, and easy to learn where it's, we just launched it a few weeks ago. We had a Sundance uh, film premiere and that was crazy. Well attended. It's been going really, really well. And we're excited to, to kind of share this with everybody, we've I think we've sold it to like almost 40 countries now have bought wow. the digital download, which was uh, it's interesting to see. I didn't think that would happen. I thought we'd sell a few overseas, but not very many, and we, we're selling them like crazy all over the world. So it's lots of fun, and and uh, it's just one more thing to add. It's not something you need to take away. You, know, you don't have to forget about indicators to do this. You just you add this technique to your quiver, and and when you think that it's most advantageous, you put it to use and. I think most anglers will find when they really learn the ins and outs of Euro style, they'll they'll use it a lot more than they initially think. This podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Ayobayo, A-Y-O-B-A-Y-O.com, a Northern Virginia company that creates South African traditional dried meats, including biltong, boars, and drawers. You can find these healthy meat snacks at Ayobayo.com. pretty crazy that you went from just casting in like parking lots further than your buddies getting into competitions to now having dvds about the techniques of competitive fishing <laughs> yeah it's a pretty well, fun the, journey it's a fun journey in the u.s uh there are only a few of us that are dumb enough to do the competition circuit most fly fishers go why would i want to do that and understandably so it's uh it's not for everybody the competition thing is is uh can be a little stressful but only for a few days at a time and the rest of the year you just get to be like everybody else and love to go fish and love to learn and and just improve your angling the one thing that it does make you do is it makes you think outside the box because it 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 uh brings you a measuring stick right if you go to a regional and you think you're a pretty hot fisherman and you don't do as well as you thought you should the natural tendency is to go well i just drew bad beach right and that could be true but if you consistently don't finish well, then there's probably more to it than just the draw. And uh, as you get better at it, I, I, I've been doing it just long enough now to 
to to kind of know when when I'm not on my game, I I don't finish as high as I think that I should. If I haven't been practicing enough or haven't been focused on the right techniques uh, based on what I expect to encounter, then it it gobbles you up pretty quick and spits you out. It's you know fishing's pretty fickle. What but would you, you put it? Go ahead. What would you consider like a bad day's worth of fishing between competition? Oh man, I've had well, you can blank in three hours if you don't catch a fish in three hours. That's what we call a blank. That's the that's the worst of all, uh, which happens occasionally. Hopefully not too often, but uh, you know, in the competition, let's use the World Championships as an example. You go five sessions, three hours each, and the first session is the only one that you're fishing virgin water. So your first session, you should be able to catch the most fish on that beat. The second session is usually about two hours after the first, and you're now fishing behind somebody that just beat the water to a pulp for three hours just ahead of you. And Not only did was there somebody in there, but they were a highly skilled fly fisher that was in there for three hours right ahead of you, just you know looking for every fish that they can stick a hook in. And so it gets progressively harder through the competition. So at the end of you know, the third, the end of the second day or the beginning of the third day, you're sometimes looking for four or five fish, one or two fish, instead of 15, 20 fish in the first session because some fisheries don't recover very well. The, you know, If they have a low density of fish, there aren't a lot to be caught, and the first couple of anglers catch most of them, and the fish are a little soured on everybody else's offerings for a day or so. What do you do in those three hours between? Just check your gear, get it all together again, fix things? You usually switch venues. So, uh, you know, like this year in Vail, Colorado, my, my session started on the Lower Eagle. Then I went to the Colorado River. So we, were, we had an hour, hour and a half of drive time. And then you have about a half an hour of re-rigging and prepping tackle before the, the session starts. And uh, so you, you don't have a lot of downtime, really. It's You're just constantly going all day. What would be an awesome day of catching in a competition? Uh, the most I've ever caught is 62 in three hours. Uh, the most that I know of being caught, I think is, I think 78 in three hours is the most that I know of. I think Pat Weiss had, I think he either had 76 or 78 in Oregon on the same river. I got 62. I think he had high seventies. That's what, there's like a, a fish every three minutes. Uh, I haven't done the math, but that sounds about right. Yeah, that, you're catching them very frequently and sometimes two at a time. Fishing two flies spaced oh, well apart, you're catching doubles several times during the session. Uh, and you're the amazing. The thing that's the most amazing part about that to me is is not just catching that number of fish, because part of that is, of course, the fishery, right? You got to have crazy high numbers of fish and and mostly small fish to allow it to even happen, right? But you have to also take into account, you're not just catching and releasing fish. You hook the fish, play the fish, land it in the net. Then you have to run it across the river to your controller, who's basically your judge, because uh, we all know how trustworthy anglers are, right, when nobody lies when they're talking about size of fish. That's all made up. Yeah, it's all made Malarkey. up. So so every competition angler has a judge with them that you have that actually scores the fish for you. So you land the fish, run it over to the judge, present it to the judge in the net, they take the hook out to make sure it's fairly hooked, place it on a measuring tray real quickly, get a measurement, and release the fish. You sign off on the measurement and then run back out and start fishing. So you got to wrap all of that up and uh, and get back to where you just left off and start catching fish again. So there's 
there are times where it becomes a little bit of an athletic event because you, you can get winded just running back and forth through the river when the fishing is that fast. Plus the folks that are not used to altitude last year. Yeah. So Vail is seven. I would say so. Yeah, probably 7,500. Yeah. Maybe even higher. I don't know what it is, but that sounds about right to me. Probably maybe even eight. The, the, the snow melt out there has got some awesome trout fishing this summer, I'm hoping. Like all of Utah just got like what nine feet at some resorts. <laughs> yeah, we've got a lot of snow this year. Most of the West is getting pounded. Yeah, that's, that should make some good trout fishing. Yes, it makes for a delayed summer. You know, our our runoff will be extended normally when we have this much snow, but uh, all, that's good for the fish. Too much water is better than not enough. Yeah, it's warm here now, so we're getting fifty degrees and just dumping rain like every couple of days. It's going to oh, dump wow. on the inauguration. I was predicting an ice storm, but it's going <laughs> to rain a lot. All political favorites put aside, ice yes. storm, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay, let's see what else I have. Uh, before we get into fly tying, uh, is there any place that you fished, competitive or non-competitive, and you're just like, this place absolutely sucks? Like, I don't want to come back here. Um. I don't know if I'd say anywhere absolutely sucks. We've had some tough fishing in some of the world championship venues. Uh, Portugal, my first one was, uh, you know, double, double edged sword in there. It was not only, I guess, was it my first competition world championship wise. So I wasn't really sure what to expect. Uh, but it was also crazy tough. You were most sessions. You were just trying to, to catch a fish to win the session. You know, if you caught the, the biggest single fish, you were usually first place in that session. So I, I think my first session I blanked, as I recall. That was the way to start your first world championship, right? Uh, that was not ideal. And then the second session, I think I caught three fish, uh, which was maybe a fifth or sixth place out of about 28 anglers or so in my group. The third session was the next morning on the Alva, and I think I caught seven fish there, and I won the session. So out of, again, almost 30 anglers I, with seven fish, that was – I think I, the next closest guy had three or four, so I, I had a really good beat, and I caught a whole bunch of fish off it compared to what we were finding. But when seven fish is your best, that's that's pretty poor. So we're uh, that was that was definitely not a good place. Uh, I hear they have decent fishing, but the time of year we were there, it was really low water, and there certainly were they were very low densities of trout. They were very very spooky trout as well. Otherwise, uh, Finland had tough fishing. I think talking to my Finnish friends, that was more about where we were in Finland, the location, than, than the actual quality of fishing. I think they have quite good fishing in Finland. Uh, they have a great team, I know, so they must have some good fishing because they, they, uh, they're getting a lot of practice in somewhere. <laughs> uh, otherwise, most other places have been pretty good. You know, on the flip side of that coin, the prettiest places are probably Slovenia, New Zealand, northern, northern Italy. Uh, Bosnia actually was, once you got out of the city, was gorgeous and crystal clear water. Uh, for most of the venues anyway, I think the dirtiest river I ever fished was in Bosnia. And there's raw, just pure raw sewage going right into the river. That was crazy. Uh, sounds like, sounds like where I guide. <laughs> I hope not. Well, you get more than got... an inch of rain and the yeah. uh, treatment plants can't maintain the sewer water plus the uh, like surface runoff coming in yeah, and it just right. overwhelms them and they just let out like 5 million gallons of raw sewage at a time. 
And then yeah. there's Alexandria, Virginia, just down the street, that just has an open sewer line into the river. Even better. Yeah. That's pretty much what this was, only there were homes along the river. Uh, and each home, they just had their own their septic system drained into the river. So when someone flushed the toilet, it just went downstream. <laughs> Corn hatch. Corn hatch. Well, thankfully, they weren't eating a lot of corn there, but... <sighs> There were plenty of other things that were strange that will go unmentioned in the river. Uh, that that one, that's the only river I've ever fished where when I got back to the hotel, I stayed in my waders and I took a shower in my waders so I could scrub the outsides of them because they were that, it's that gross. But well, Speaking but of waders, the, it's got to be also tough with all the, the groupy women that want to tear your waders off at these events too. Yeah, I've never had that problem in my entire life. Oh man, I guess I'm not getting into competitive fishing then. <laughs> Yeah, competitive fishing is not where you want to be if you're looking for girls. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm happily married. I have a lovely, pa- you know, patient wife that uh, puts up with my fishing as is. But, but even still, I think she's the only one that uh, is really into five, ten, five, eleven guys that are uh, what I, I describe my build as weaselly, uh, <laughs> a little on the thin side, you know, less drag that way, right? Right. Absolutely. Okay, I'm gonna move on. Let's talk. Uh... Let's talk about your fly time. It looks like the signature flies that you have in the Umqua catalog are more towards competition flies. And I'm yeah. guessing, like, you're, you're most well-known, I'm going to say, for the um, – I'm totally blanking on it. Right? The Rainbow Warrior. Yeah. So that's the one I see on the – on the fly tying pages a lot. People are like, oh, I'm going to get one of these. And I see them in the catalog and – I'm guessing that there was like a mayfly and you had to reproduce it because the fish were eating it and you came up with the rainbow warrior to match the hatch. <laughs> yeah. Cause the rainbow warrior looks like everything, right? Yeah. Uh, no, the rainbow warrior, definitely my most popular selling fly. Uh, and yeah, to your point earlier, a lot of my, at least my nymphs specifically are kind of competition inspired flies. If you will, they have a lot of hot spots, uh, they're kind of wacky colors oftentimes, not necessarily imitative, more attractor-type flies. The more I fish, the more I gravitate to the attractor-style nymphs for just searching. There's always a time and a place for really imitative stuff, but generally speaking, we catch a lot more of our fish on attractors. But uh, Anyway, the Rainbow Warrior, start, I wish I could tell you it started out as just a you know, genius thought that I had that I was going to put all these things together. It, it was really more of a mistake. Uh, I tie flies just about every night before I go fishing, and usually I tie everything that I know I'm going to need first. And once I get those done, if I'm still not tired or uh, have a little more time, then I might tie a few of what I call try-me flies. I oftentimes tie three of this or four of that and and you know crazy colors or just a new twist on an old pattern just to try it out, see what, see what the fish like and don't like and that fly the rainbow warrior was one of those i tied it late one night stuck it in the box went fishing the next day never even got it out uh i'm not exactly sure how long it stayed in my box but i think around a year year and a half uh, i was on the provo river which is my kind of my home water the closest river to where i live and the uh the fish were feeding pretty heavily mostly on nymphs it was late winter early spring time frame and uh i was catching the odd fish but not as many as i thought i should based on the activity level of the fish so i went through 
cycled through all my regular confidence patterns and caught a few fish, but I think I was up to about seven or eight fish when I'd gone through all my regular flies and started to tr- trying out the try me flies. And I got to the rainbow warrior, put it on. I'd never fished it before. And I went from about an eight fish day to a 40 fish day in almost mm-hmm. two hours. So it just went crazy for me. And I, I was working at fish tech at the time and I came back to the guys there and told them how that fly had just changed my world that day. And, and they, you know, they're kind of, uh, they're tenured fly, you know, fly fishing and fishing shop, uh, employees that have heard every story under the sun about, you know, silver bullet flies, right? So they're, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm sure it works great. And they were kind. They were, they were patient with me and listened to my rant about how great the fly was. And I fished it again a few days later and just had the same success. The fish just couldn't leave it alone. And, uh, so Mickey Anderson, my buddy at Fish Tech, who is, feeling uh, you know in a moment of uh of patience with his with his uh, employee was feeling bad i'm sure and said all right i gotta get this guy to quit talking about this rainbow warrior so i'm just gonna let him tie a few so he, he encouraged me to tie a couple dozen he said why don't you tie a couple dozen we'll throw them in the bins we'll sell them to some customers tell them your experience with them and we'll see how they do and if they do well with them and they want more then we'll we'll have you tie some more and so we did that process and I think that over the next year, I tied personally. I tied 133 dozen of them for the shop. I uh, just couldn't keep up, so we ended up talking to our Umpqua sales rep uh, at the time. That his name's Van Rollo, and uh, Van got he we we said we want to have these flies uh, custom ordered from Umpqua. So Umpqua has their catalog patterns, and then you can also as a retailer. If you order a, a minimum amount, uh, you can have them tie just about any pattern you like, right? So we were going to have him do this custom fly for our store. And he, he said, well, how many do you, do you think you'll sell? And when we told him the numbers we'd sold the previous year, he said, well, shoot, if you're selling that many, we ought to just stick them in the catalog. So he went through the process for me of getting all that taken care of. And I, I ended up getting my first fly in the Umpqua catalog and sold them there. The fly just kind of sat for a couple of years. It, as I think you've seen, it doesn't have a lot of uh, what we in the industry call bin appeal, right? Doesn't Whiskers, eyes, exactly <laughs> six legs and three tail fibers. You know that, yeah, it doesn't look like much, but the fish like it. And so it took a little while for it to grow some legs and get off the ground. But once it did, it, it took off and it's selling more and more every year. So it's, it's, a, it's a great pattern. It works on tailwaters and it works on free stones as well. Uh, picky fish and, and non-picky fish, uh, you know, brown trout and cuts. I call those the two polar opposites in the trout world. Brown trout, super cuts, uh, dumb as a fence post most of the time. They'll, they'll give you three or four chances at everything. But uh, anyhow, they, it works really well and, and was totally a mistake, but it, it's it's been a great fly. Yeah, a lot of your flies don't have those additions. It was like Walter Weesey we had on a couple years ago, and he had – six tenants of fly tying about just you don't need all that extraneous stuff like it you know bin appeal sells but my foam mouse is just a body and a tail there's no whiskers yeah. no ears I, I tell people what does the bottom of your uh you know bacon cheeseburger look like the bun right it right. can say f you customer they would never know <laughs> just like i don't know what the top of you know flying birds look like i see the bellies Sure. I think you're exactly right. I'm amazed every year at how many customers come in, usually during the blueing olive hatch, and 
they won't buy any parachute flies because they say the fish won't eat them because they have a white wing and the naturals are more of a gray wing. You're going, well, that's true. The gray, the naturals do have a gray wing, but, but I think you'll find they'll eat a parachute really, really well. And it's easier for you to see. I, I fish, I don't know about you, Rob, but almost all my mayfly imitations, as far as on the surface go, I, I tend to favor the parachute style. Uh, anyhow, we always get some customers that just will not they're adamant the fish won't eat it and i'm going well i don't think they jump out of the water look at the top of the fly and then land on it but maybe your fish do i'm not sure and i got schooled on the use of parachutes this summer on the dream stream my buddy justin was hooking fish left and right i only had a couple on me but once i switched them up i mean it was i wish i had a tying kit with me out there because then a couple days yeah. later at my in-laws two blocks from their house they're trout rising every afternoon and i had maybe three left oh, and no. uh, man i'm not going back out west without a you know a bunch of i never tied a parachute never needed to and now i'm like i need to start tying them yeah they're my favorite way to imitate mayflies they kind of you know with the tail and the hackle they sit flush with the surface so you get a nice silhouette of the body they ride with the wing up every single time and they're easy to see and they're really not that bad to tie that you know learning to tie the parachute the hackle specifically around the parachute wing is a little bit of a challenge when you're a new fly tire, but most people handle it pretty quick. Lots of YouTube videos out to help with that now. Do you get a shirt that says I'm a Umqua signature tire? I don't have one that says I'm an Umqua signature tire. Uh, they sent me like a pin on, you know, a name badge that says that. I think, I think it says signature fly designer, Lance Egan, something like that. There you go. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it makes me feel pretty cool. Yeah. Your wife's <laughs> at cocktail party. She's like, my husband is a signature tie with Umqua. Yeah, yeah, and people go, what's Umqua again? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's I'm not fine. a, uh, it's definitely not that. As you know, the fly fishing world is pretty small, pretty niche, but it's fun. It's, uh, it's, it's not necessarily something that I strived for, I wouldn't say, but it, uh, it, it, it's kind of fun actually to think about flies and think about, you know, presenting new new creations to the fish and also presenting them to fishermen and trying to find the perfect mix of something that someone will buy and try, but more importantly, that will catch fish. That's my new dragonfly I'm working on. I'm going to reveal it at All the right. Somerset show next week. Nice. I came up with it falling asleep one night. I was like, uh-oh, I have to go <laughs> tie it or I got to go draw it. So There, there are yeah, nights where I get up right out of bed at like 1130 I'm just sitting there, just pondering like a bug or something, and then uh -huh. I've got to come down here and just tie it. Absolutely, I do that when I'm at work too. I'll have this thought about be talking to a customer about a particular material or something, and a thought will pop in my head, and I'll grab my phone and jump into my notes and just type in some notes, you know, saying I got to add this material to this particular fly and try that out, and then it's in my fly tying list. Do you have a preference for the colors you throw in on the, uh, the hot spots? Uh, red is probably first and foremost of my flies, maybe followed by pink. Uh, but I, I like, uh, you know, Frenchies. I like with UV shrimp pink from hairline or UV pink from hairline, little hot spots. Those work really well. My red dart has the UV pink, my Frenchie, the UV shrimp pink, uh, red dart has a red tail. So we're back to that red, the surveyor and the rainbow warrior kind of have the red thread hot spot behind the bead. Uh, those would be my go-tos. I like, I, I do like orange and chartreuse as well, as far as spots go, but I tend towards the pink and the red more commonly. How'd you come up with the name Rainbow Warrior, other than that 
It's got kind of a rainbow iridescence to it. And it's a simple fly. There's three ingredients. Yeah, it's really simple. That's kind of one of the hallmarks of my flies, too. I don't like to make them too terribly difficult, uh, mostly because I'm tying them late at night, oftentimes before I want to fish, and I don't want to have to spend a half an hour per fly. And also because I have a tendency to be leery of throwing my flies right where I need to get them, near the bottom, near the banks, near overhangs, if they take me an hour apiece. If I can whip them up in three or four minutes, it doesn't bother me so much to lose one. Yeah, that's like got to be able to get them where the fish live. That's like the equivalent of making like a huge, you know, five course dinner and then just like throwing in the trash can. Right. <laughs> yeah the the naming of the Rainbow Warrior, I'm a little bit unsure. I should know that, but I I think that when I was tying it at first, my friend Michael White, uh, Whitey, we call him out here. He, uh, I think we were bouncing ideas back and forth in in the car, maybe driving one day and. As I recall, we came up with that one. I think it's, you know, the, the Hawaii, University of Hawaii football team they call the Rainbow Warriors. Uh, and it's kind of rainbow colored. It uses Wapsie Rainbow South Scud dubbing. It's flashy. Uh, don't, I couldn't tell you much more about it other than that name just stuck. I don't, it, it works for more than just rainbow trout. A lot of people ask me that. Does it work for browns too? Yeah, that's mostly what I catch on it, but, uh, rainbows will eat it too. Sure. Carp gobble it up. I don't know if I've ever caught a carp on it. They probably would, uh, but I, I've never tried it, I don't, at least not that I recall. Yeah, I mean, the ones here in the Sino Canal, well, it's drained of water right now. And also, they found a huge cache of guns there like a week and a half ago. <laughs> right at like the big fishing spot, uh, Fletcher's Cove. So for those listening around here that know the spot and didn't hear the story, someone was like, walking along the canal and looks down and sees a violin case. She's like, oh, that's curious. What's in it? Uh, she goes and opens it, and it's got, like, two broken-down rifles. Oh, wow. She calls the cops. They scour the area. They found, I think the quote was, buckets of, like, guns and, like, duffel bags of rifles. Oh, wow. Which is weird. That is strange. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Rainbow Warrior. Oh, so I was saying the carp in the canal. So they drained it now. But they eat, I mean, like a size 10 flashback hair's ear. Mm-hmm. Put that, they can be in the middle of the column, not even like feeding, and they'll slurp it in. So I'm sure the yes. Rainbow Warrior, because that water is like duty brown. It's like the Bosnia yeah. water. They just need to see it. Yeah, for us to see it. Yeah. And those yeah, carp run work. big. I'd tie it uh, larger than most shops probably carry it. I, I sometimes fish in like size 12s. Uh, you know, more again for trout, but uh, I, I don't want to confuse people. I more commonly fish it in 16s and 18s, but occasionally I'll fish it up to about a size 12 uh, in lakes and things as a chronomid or, you know, that sort of application. But it, I, if I were going to chase carp with it, I'd tie it big, 10 or 12 probably. Right. Do you catch anything just bizarre on it? Anything as odd bycatch? Um, I don't remember catching an odd bycatch on a rainbow warrior. No, I don't, I don't. I've caught some strange stuff over the years, some frogs. I hooked into a, a water oozel in the river one time. Uh, Are those the ones that dive down? Yeah, they're like dippers. Yeah, I, I hooked one once as a kid in Colorado. Yeah, that's what I – I didn't hook it in the mouth. Uh, I didn't want to say uh, like he <laughs> took my fly. I just was nymphing a run, and uh, I didn't see the bird go in, so he, he must have been under there. Uh, yeah. I walk up to a run, throw it in threw the rig in there and I was fishing the indicator rig at the time. The indicator went down and I set the hook and I thought, oh, you know, you feel something pulled back. I thought I got a fish. 
pretty cool. And then all of a sudden my fish flew out of the water and started doing circles around me. We, uh, we saw a guy set the hook last year and ended up being a cormorant that swam across his lure. Oh, wow. Like a big cormorant. Uh, we were in the drift boat fishing for shad and just kind of put the rods down and watch this. There's a picture of him like throwing it up in the air once he got it off. Wow. But I did read an article that if you foul hook or ever see a, a heron tangled in line, don't yeah. approach it because they're going to pluck your eyeballs out first. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it'll happen before, like, it's so fast, you'll be blind. Oh, so wow. Don't approach blue herons. Don't get to the heron. I did hook a, uh, I was fishing in Cabo one time, and I, I had a pelican dive bomb my fly. So I hooked it in the mouth, and the, uh, the Mexican guide was, was cursing at me while I landed it on a, on a nine weight, pulled the thing, the bird all the way into the boat, and the thing, those things get aggressive. It started snapping its beak and making crazy noises, and then the uh, guy did a crazy trick where he put one hand to the right of it, you know, shaking, moving his fingers to get its attention, and put his other hand over a towel and slowly, very slowly moved it towards the bird until he got within striking distance. Then with the towel, he reached out and grabbed around the beak, and then the bird thrashed for a minute, and he just held it by the beak until it stopped thrashing. And he uh, carefully extracted the hook and uh, let the bird go. And I don't think that pelican, it, it didn't fly away. It swam away when he let it go. And it swam probably, I don't know, 50 or 60 yards and never took its eyes off the boat as it swam away. Give you the stink eye? Oh, it's totally the stink eye. The thing that I thought of was I just, I just felt like, you know, the, the UFO guys in the U.S. That, uh, or anywhere in the world for that matter that, come back and say they were probed by aliens. I can just see that's what that pelican <laughs> did. He just came back to his buddies. He's like, that boat over there just probed me, prodded me, poked me with something, and then let me go. I'm going to use that method of with the hand over here and the towel over here tonight when we've got to change out my daughter's infected ear piercing. <laughs> it took two grown-ups to hold down like a 35-pound five-year-old this morning. Oh, no. That poor little gal. Yeah. And then it was over. She's like, that wasn't so bad. And I'm like, yeah, yeah see, I told you. Yes, it was. <laughs> All right. Uh, coming up on the last question, um, the mop fly, it's been around for years. I know you've got a video on it, but every day on Facebook, it's usually fly tying patterns and videos. I see, say, 10 pictures either of people tying different varieties or the mop nubs that they have found in stores. <laughs> it's just like blown up. It's like people just discovered the mop fly since Thanksgiving. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I see it occasionally on my feed, but not too often. It, it had a little bit of, uh, seems like around, yeah, Thanksgiving to Christmas time, it was getting a lot of love, but I haven't seen it so much lately. But anyhow, it uh, it's a fly I've used a little bit in competitions uh, and on my fun fishing as well. It it has its days here and there where it's worked okay. I I uh I did a Facebook rant that you could go look about it a while back. I I read some articles about it that I thought were totally not true, so I, I had to uh, at least give my opinion on the matter. It was it was you know reported that the mop you can just throw in the water, and even if there's no trout for 20 yards around your fly, they just naturally know that it's there and they gravitate to it basically. And, come out of the woodwork to eat the fly and I, if i could find a fly like that i wouldn't need to practice competition fishing anymore i could just use that fly but heck yeah the uh the truth of the matter is no such fly exists right you still have to present the fly properly in the right water type get it to the right depth or drift it in the right lane on the surface and 
all of the other uh, things with every other fly still apply to the mop. So I, I went on a bit of a rant about it because I, I was a little tired of everybody saying, all you have to do is have this fly and you catch every fish in the river. <laughs> it got second place in the Healing Waters two-fly tournament last year. Did it? All right. Yeah. It certainly has a time and place. We've had some days. Uh, we had a day while we were filming for our DVD where it, you know we, we were catching fish but not very fast, and maybe two-thirds of the way into the day, Devin tried one, and all of a sudden the fish really liked it. So we, it certainly has had days where it's worked well for me, but it's also had lots of days where it didn't work at all. Story of my life. Yeah, just like every other fly, right? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it was Tim Flagler doing the Orvis video. That made it popular, but yeah, it's definitely been it's been in the press. Mm, I'll have to check that one out. I haven't seen Tim's video on the mop. Yeah, I still haven't gotten him on the podcast. We all try to do that at Somerset this year. I want him to tie my damselfly because he gets more views than I ever will. <laughs> he definitely gets a lot of views. He does yeah. a great job with his videos. Absolutely. All right. Anything else you want to discuss? I'm kind of right through the oh, gamut. Where can we find yeah. you on social media? Uh, I'm on Instagram at, at, uh, at Lance Egan Fly Fishing and just on Facebook under my name, Lance Egan, E-G-A-N. Fantastic. Uh, if you could have a superpower to make you a better angler, what would you take? Superpower for a better angler, I'd probably take flying. I could just, uh, I could hover over the water, takes away uh, places I can't wade. I could get a bird's eye view of trout in a run or bonefish on a flat or rooster fish in the surf or on and on and on. I think uh, flying would be my superpower. If you gave me one, that'd probably be it. I was wondering about being Spider Man because you would never run out of tippet material. <laughs> yeah, you, I wonder if he could. Uh, he can dictate strength to diameter. That'd be something. Yeah. That'd be interesting. Like, I'm going to shoot out a Skagit head for my... There it goes. <laughs> that would be cool. Fantastic. Well, I think that answers all my questions from just seeing your fly and wanting to get your story about it and the story about you. Cool. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Rob. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Have a great night. All right, dude. Take care. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. And if you lack the strength of your own, honey, hold out your hands and take it from an old man. This has been a production of Freestone Media.